Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today on Sagittarian Matters, Grooviness and the Power of Saying No, with illustrator Carson Ellis. Stay tuned. Carson Ellis is an illustrator living in Portland, and she is also a very nice person. You might recognize her name from all of the art she has done for the band The Decemberists. Perhaps you know her as the illustrator of the Wildwood book series, or maybe you've picked up her beautiful children's picture book, Home. Whatever the reason, if you haven't seen Carson's illustrations, run, don't walk, and find them. I drove to Carson's farm right outside of Portland a couple of weeks ago after a long day of teaching middle school. We sat in her art studio, surrounded by fields and animals, drank tea, and talked about lots of things around the subject of being a professional illustrator and being an introvert. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the very groovy Carson Ellis. Your farm is like a perfect, to me it's like a perfect place, because you have your studio out here, separate from the house, Mm -hmm. so you can have your separate space, and you have just enough farm animals to make it interesting. Thanks. But not too many to make it stressful. Yeah. It's really more like a petting zoo than a farm. Yeah. As we said before. Like Um, friendly animals. Yeah, they're friendly animals. I like it a lot. I think, like, the setup is pretty perfect. I do. I have a little house in a field where I work. And then I have my house. And then there's a garage-like building where Colin, my husband, works. And then we have a big barn and we have a gigantic chicken coop. Yeah. A chicken coop that's, like, bigger than my old apartment <laughs> oh that's bigger than a lot of people's apartments i know it used to house like 300 chickens so you could airbnb the other side of that chicken coop i was thinking of that yesterday not airbnb it because i don't have any interest in having like strange drifters Constant guests. In the chicken coop. but i do i was like whoa could we have like a guest room in the chicken coop but all that to say, I love it. But at the same time, it's sort of, it's a ton of work, right? Even yeah. It's not a lot of farm animals, but it's a lot of fruit trees. It's a giant garden. It's enough animals and enough weird old outbuildings that combined with parenting duties and illustration duties, it's kind of a little too much. And I don't know that I'm ever have been someone who has felt very romantic about farm life. So many people mm. I know are like, oh shit, you live on a farm? that is my dream and I'm like that's awesome that was never really my dream I like it a lot it's super idyllic yeah it's peaceful out here but I really like wilderness places like more wild than this much more wild than this because when you think about it a farm is the opposite of a wilderness place it's like tamed outdoors it's tamed outdoors and if you were living in a wild place you would be living kind of um you would be like at one with nature, mm-hmm. but out here you're battling nature in everything you do. Mm-hmm. You know, you're protecting your chickens from hawks. You're yeah. battling squirrels who are trying to steal eggs out of your coop. Yeah, you're um, battling coyotes who are trying to eat your goats. Yeah, you're, there's like grass. Yeah, you're angry at the moles that are coming up through your garden. Like everything, you're fighting against nature, kind of in everything that you do, just by virtue of having a farm whereas I think my dream place would be like this except there would be no domesticated animals except my cat and I would be in the woods and there would be like a creek so you would come up and maybe some deers would cruise by and be like we're doing our own thing we're taking care of ourselves we just wanted to say hi yeah yeah exactly and I'd be like oh I know you guys you kind of walk by my house once in a while cool we're peace peace out maybe that's do you think are you more of a cat person yeah I'm more of a dog person, so I like the dependence. Uh-huh. I don't have any human dependence, so I think that it could be different, you know. Like I if I actually had to take care of a human being and then take care of a goat, that might seem like too much. 
It's a lot. I have like a crazy, crazy amount of dependents. Yeah. Right? Two children, one cat, one fish, currently one frog, oh. two goats, yeah. um, one sheep, two llamas, and eight chickens, four chicks, and two eggs that are being sat on getting ready to hatch. That's a big to-do. That's a big constant to-do list. It's a lot of things that would die if I didn't feed them, you know? Like it's if you just tomorrow were like, I'm out. I'm out. Sorry, I figured out, folks. The farm would smell really bad. Oh, it would. It already does. Oh. <laughs> I think it smells very pleasant. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Mm. Um, you, this has nothing to do with anything, but I do have advice questions for you. Mm. But you seem, are you an introvert in yeah. life? Yeah, I kind of am. Do I seem like an introvert? I think I, I, think I thought that just because you are an illustrator. Mm. So you spend a lot of time alone mm-hmm. in your head. Mm-hmm. How did having kids interact with you being an introvert? Like, did you have to try harder to get that mental space to, like, with all these dependents, to, like, re-ground yourself or regenerate? Mm-hmm. Um, I think about that a lot, actually, because I am... I don't know if I'm an introvert or an extrovert, because I am extroverted in ways. Like, I like... I don't feel like I run from people and and human interaction but at the same time I'm probably happiest by myself I love um, I guess I'm a loner Mm -hmm. so having kids is weird because they just they need a lot and they want to be around me all the time yeah and I want to be around them too because they're my kids and I adore them but I feel like I have to now make my private alone time whereas I didn't have to make it before it was like I had to remind myself to go out and be around people now it's like I have to kind of make these boundaries and yeah leave and go do my work and be by myself even when it makes the people I love miserable because they don't want me to do that yeah um it's it's interesting it's interesting to watch people become parents and to see how that kind of level of dependence and social need and stuff plays on different personality types. Yeah. And for me, my kids are just kind of used to me disappearing a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they're I think they're mostly okay with it. One of them is like the loneliest kid in the world and the other is the most socially fluent, kind of easygoing person who always wants to be around other people, so they're really different. I think well my I coming out as an introvert Mm -hmm. My sister called me out on it last year. She Mm -hmm. was like, oh, yeah, you're an introvert. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I'm not shy, and I talk to people as a business almost. You know, like all the time. I, like, get up on stage in front of people or talk to people and teach and blah, blah, blah. But she's like, well, yeah, you're a a showman, but you're an introvert. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you you regenerate by being alone. Like, it's draining to you. Like, you'll do Mm -hmm. it, talk to people, but then it's draining and you have to be alone. I just felt like my sister called me out on something very deep. We haven't even, you know, we don't hang out that much. We haven't talked for years. Like, we haven't hung out for years because she has a kid, so we've never been, like, one-on-one for a long time. Mm-hmm. And one-on-one, I was like, whoa. It's like, you do know me. Yeah. Very well. But so I imagine that when I see people with their kids, and their kids are like, Mom, look at me. Mom, 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 mom. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what would that, how would that play out? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. honestly kind of hard. I I think I'm the exact same way. Like, I, I notice that people, their kids will be out of school. I mean, most parents gripe about their kids being out of school because yeah. it's hard work. But, like, people go on vacation, and that's fun. <clears throat> but when I go on vacation, it's super fun. I love hanging out with my family. But there, that time to recharge isn't built into my days, so yeah. I go a little crazy. And by yeah. the end, I'm like, everybody, get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> like, I'm so done vacationing with you all. I just need, <laughs> I get super grumpy, and I just need kind of my own space. And in my normal life, my normal life feels more like vacation because it feels like a pretty nice balance. Like, I'm working all day, I'm by myself. By the time my kids are done with school, I'm excited to see them. But that's, I can't hang with people all day or I, no. I lose it. I'm only slowly realizing that about myself. Mm, like it's such I, a good thing to know about yourself because then you just build it in. And then you just say to your family, like, look, I love you people, but I'm going to be so grumpy if you don't let me go be by myself for a little bit. Yeah. Sorry to be a weirdo, but that's just the way it is. I just need to go stare at a wall for like an mm. hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not doing anything better 
I don't have a second family. I'm uh-huh. just going to go stare at a wall. <laughs> or my phone yeah. for an hour. I'm just going to like go fall on Instagram for like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And my brain is going to reorganize itself. Yeah. I feel that way when I have house guests. Yeah. Where I'm so too. happy they're there, but I just need to like go in a room and shut the door for a while. I tend to have weirdo house guests that are the same way. That are like, I'm going to go take a walk. I'll see you in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. They're the best. So happy to see you. Goodbye. Goodbye. I have advice questions for you from people. Hi, Nicole. Big fan of the show. And also, I love your work as a cartoonist. Um, I'm sure you get this question a lot. So sorry to ask it again. But what advice do you have for young, aspiring cartoonists? Uh, specifically ones living in less culturally enriched places. Thank you. First of all, I'd say, like, recognize you might be a little bit lucky if you're culturally isolated, but also acknowledge that you're not actually culturally culturally isolated. If you have the Internet or a phone, um, you have Instagram and Tumblr and yeah. everything, like, you're you're so you're so much more hip than I ever was in Montana in the '90s to to art in general. Um, but so I don't actually know if it matters that you're culturally isolated. Yeah. I think it's it's helpful to have a community of creative people around you that you're inspiring and that you're inspired by. But if you don't have those people around you, you have books and the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, my advice in general for people like wanting to do illustration or comics, though I have no advice about comics, that's your I'll department. Get you'll, you'll get to that, is just to draw all the time. Yeah. And to probably, if you're serious about it and you want to do it for a living, I would say also keep your overhead insanely low. Like live in squalor or a nice place that's very cheap. Live Agreed. in a city you can afford to live in. Which used to mean Portland, but not so much anymore. I know. (laughs) Live in squalor is a great tip. Yeah. Or just have low standards. Like, cut down on the things you need to spend money on every month. Buy cheap clothes and have cheap rent and eat cheap food and work a day job like three days a week so that you can pay for those things and then spend the rest of your time drawing and I don't think this is necessarily good advice. It won't fit everybody, but maybe don't go to an expensive art school because then you're not hustling to pay back student loans. I went to a really cheap school, and the drawback is that I didn't learn very much, and there was no illustration program, and Mm -hmm. I didn't even learn to use any of the materials that I use now. But um, the upside was that I did meet a lot of creative, like I had a creative community that I was able to kind of explore being an artist with while living on the cheap. I think that's it. I don't have a lot of advice for myself as a younger artist. Seems like you did you had a nice path. I had a nice path. I thought I had it all figured out. You know, I worked in bars forever. I didn't graduate from the bar world until I was in my very late 20s. Like, I think I was 28 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and for most of that time, I was a cocktail waitress, not a bartender. I was only a bartender for a couple of years. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I was a kind of consummate service industry person who just figured I would do that forever and I was totally convinced that that was um, just going to be my thing because it would allow me this time to be an artist and I was like bartending it's the perfect job yeah but remember that storytelling thing we did together I told that horrible story about oh it was not horrible Nicole and I did a storytelling thing for to raise money for what were we raising money for Distracta no, it was at Distracta. It was at Distracta. It was backbence, and it was a benefit for something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Something we cared about. The IPRC? <laughs> yeah. Was it for the IPRC? It might have been for the IPRC. Okay. Something like Certainly that. Certainly possible. Okay. Something we both like. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and I told the story about how I had this bartending job in Portland that I loved, and it seemed so perfect, and we were like self-governed, and we made our own schedules, and how could a job get any better? But then at some point... I realized that um, it was really a depressing job. I forgot about this part of your story. Yeah, it was was a moment of reckoning in my life. A lot of things kind of culminated. It was a constellation of things. But I realized, like, ah, maybe being a bartender isn't the best job to have, like, you know, into your 60s and 70s. I just sort of thought that I would do that forever. Wait, why was it depressing? um, Well, the main thing that was depressing about it was that people that came into the bar all the time 
were super fucked up. So there were like a lot of alcoholics and there were a lot of junkies and a lot of people who were my age died like while I was working that. Would be like regulars at the bar, but also people who worked there, people who were friends, people OD'd, people committed suicide. There were weird accidents. It was just like a self-destructive scene with a lot of wreckage and it was it got super sad. And then someone that I knew that I really loved died and then I just kind of couldn't work there anymore. So I made this decision, um, actually I'd made this decision after taking a bunch of, this was the whole point of that story, I'm kind of summarizing it, but I took a bunch of mushrooms with my best friend and decided to quit my bartending job and do a bunch of other things. This story's better if you're telling I it like a live. I forgot about the mushrooms. <laughs> I remembered, I remembered the column through line, I remembered like your illustrations in the column through line and like. Maybe, like, there was some California involved. And maybe you were like, I don't know about him. And then it turned out okay. Yeah, there was, like, a crazy road trip and a car that broke down, and it was an odyssey. So you took mushrooms, and the mushrooms said, quit your bar. Yeah, the mushrooms made me crazy, but they told me, um, quit your your job at the bar. It's You thought it was your dream job, but really it's making you miserable. And then the mushrooms... So my advice to people is not, like, take mushrooms and sort out your life. I'm like, should I do mushrooms? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) This just happened to work out for me. Um, And then the other thing they told me were... Because I was broken up with Colin, who's now my husband. This was, like, a long time ago. Ten years ago. Um, The other thing they told me was, get back together with Colin. (laughs) He's, like, the first person you've ever met that is like offers a chance of lasting love and he's awesome oh my god they got back together with colin and then the third thing was like stop being such a pussy about your artwork really yeah it was like you're you're just sort of waiting for things to happen to you and you're doing all these little projects here and there but you're kind of you're kind of worried that you don't want to look like a loser by failing publicly by putting yourself out there as an artist and then failing Mm -hmm. and you'll probably make some progress the way you're doing it you have been making progress the way you're doing it but it's sort of a um it, it's kind of like a not very dedicated way to go about being an artist mm. so the resolution was quit your job and figure out a way to make a living as an illustrator because you love it like yeah. don't just make flyers for bands for free beer at shows like figure out a way to pay your tiny tiny rent which was like $300 a month Mm -hmm. by doing illustration and so I went home and I borrowed some money from my parents and I got like a this was way back in the day yeah (laughs) but I got like a um online portfolio on a website that art directors actually looked at Mm -hmm. and I started getting hired to do illustration gigs and um started making a really 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 measly but passable living off of art pretty soon after I made that decision all that to say I wouldn't change anything because I really just fucked around for a long long time and I I really like that I did that like I don't I, I wouldn't relive those years to like figure out a way to make a career as an illustrator sooner yeah I'm really glad I had those years and I was a kind of like a um you know, I was like a wild teenager and a wild person in my 20s, and I had a kid. I got pregnant when I was 29, and if I hadn't done all of that stuff, I feel like I would have gotten pregnant and wondered what would have happened if I had had wild years in my 20s. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that I did it the way I did, but I'm also really glad that I had that like vision quest and <laughs> decided to change my life because when I got to be... I guess I was 28 when I quit my bartending job. I, when I got to be that age, it started to feel like a drag and a grind. Yeah. I love that story. <laughs> Every person I've ever dated in the long term has tried to get me to do mushrooms. I saw this. I saw That's real. So I drew a comic. I did, I did a one-page comic about it. Uh-huh. Every person. Somebody as recently as December tried to do a straight-up labyrinth door knocker move where she plugged my nose so I would open my mouth so she could put a mushroom in my mouth. That's unethical. That was unethical. I just... Dude, they're not for everyone. (laughs) Maybe they are for They're definitely not for any 12-year-old Wildwood fans who are listening to this podcast. No, no, no. But they they are for me. I find them useful. And I did I have found them useful in the past. Like, I took them in college. And the, the point of this story was that it had been years and I was like celebrating my best friend's birthday with her and I was like what do you want to do and she was like this you know for old time's sake and it just made it gave me the sense of clarity that I sort of needed to have about all of these things in my life that were confusing at the time but they're pretty crazy 
I mean, truly, this is like people that have gotten to know me very, very well that are like, this is the one thing that has to happen. And I'm like, what are you talking about now? Would you do it? Obviously so. not if everybody's asked you to and you've said no. I think that I feel like very, like a knee-jerk reaction to peer pressure. Yeah. Or like, like I had this girlfriend who would always, whenever we went to water, she'd be like, get in, get in, jump in, jump in. As I was like easing myself <laughs> into the cold water. She's like, just do it, do it, do it, dip, dip. And I would just be like, like the more that she would pressure me to do it, the slower I would get into the water. I think that's a good impulse. Like if she had not been, when she's not there, I will totally just jump in. Yeah. I think that's a good impulse. It's like your brain is saying like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, why are you doing this? Who's in charge? Who's in charge here? Let me just look. So maybe if somebody like offered me mushrooms without like the pressure of trying to like literally stuff them into my mouth, Mm -hmm. I could be like, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll table this. Yeah, even if someone was like, I have ice cream and like plugged my nose and tried to shove it in my mouth, I'd no. be like, I'd rather have that under different circumstances. <laughs> True, the nose plugging only happened one time. Okay. <laughs> but I, I feel very thoughtful about drugs. Like somebody at a party once was like, do you want to do Molly? And I was like, what is that? I don't even remember I was what like, is, is that ecstasy? And she said, yeah. And I was like, I I gotta think about, can I text you later? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I think that answer is supposed to be like, yeah, woo. But I just. I'm cool. I was like, I need to go home and make some, like, notations. Like, maybe, like, Google this for a while and really think about it. Uh I didn't didn't ever text her. You didn't do it. I never did it. I haven't done Molly either. (laughs) It was like a trend. Like, people here are, like, partying and doing Molly and feeling really groovy. Yeah. I'm just not groovy. That's yeah, not part of my thing. I used to be groovy. I think maybe I'm not anymore. Mm. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay to just be 40 and not be groovy. Yeah, you don't have to be groovy. No, right. you really don't. You started out with zines. Kind of. Kind of. I've made a few. You got your feet wet with zines? You no. Started? I, I think That's I got true. my... So when I was in... Co- I went to college at the University of Montana mm-hmm. before the internet. So... Mm. I had some very formative kind of art years in a pretty isolated, culturally isolated place. Um, but I was really into comics. There was a good comic book store. Mm. So I did read a lot of comics. I read a lot of 8-Ball mm-hmm. obsessively. Um, and Julie Doucet and Dame Darcy and yeah. all the people from the 90s and on that were making amazing comics. And so... I think in um, emulating that, I made a few mini-comics. I made one in college and one after. Nothing that I would ever want anyone to look up or find. You know, that's immediately what I think. Oh, my God. Where is it? I can't wait to read those. It's (laughs) nowhere. Don't even try. Um, And uh, and then in college, actually, so I went to the University of Montana, and they didn't have an illustration program, so I just studied painting. Mm. So I was like a fine art painter. Mm. Um... And I always think that was interesting. Like, looking back, I'm pretty grateful for the cultural isolation of Missoula, Montana, pre-internet, because I didn't have any much access to anything outside of what I was learning about in art history classes. I really glommed onto, like, um, uh, German expressionists mm-hmm. and, like, uh, Egon Schiele and mm-hmm. Gustav Klimt and mm-hmm. the kind of artists that people find in college and glom onto. And so I made a lot of these gigantic figurative kind of grotesque paintings and stuff. Really different oh. than what I do now. They're super horrible. Don't. <laughs> I see your eyes lighting up. I'm like, can Don't. I find those too? No, you can't find them. They're gone. They're all gone. <laughs> them all. But, um, but, I, but I'm appreciative for that because still yeah. that informs what I do now a lot. And it was nice not to have just every possible um, creative influence and inspiration like at my fingertips on my phone you grew up kind of punk right no i grew up a hippie you grew up a hippie yeah punks and hippies have a lot in common even though they're like nice to hear you say that even though they're like cats and dogs (laughs) it's a controversial opinion they they have so much in common i mean whenever i'm like oh hippies i'm like yes we both eat lentils like if i like wrote (laughs) if i wrote it out like this standards of living Mm -hmm. pretty similar except for maybe punks are just more aggro yeah there there are subcultures that happened at different times so like but when you have a someone who identifies as a hippie in the 90s when you know like punk was kind of a more of a i don't know it's just yeah 
like punk punk didn't start in the 90s and neither did being a hippie neither did like classic rock so it's interesting to trying to figure out like what draws those people to those two different subcultures that kind of weren't at their burgeoning era or whatever for me the difference was drugs Mm. Like, I could have gone on a hippie path because I really cared about the earth, uh-huh. like, very much in animals. I had, like, all kinds of t-shirts, you know, and I wanted to go vegetarian so bad years before I became a vegetarian uh-huh. when I was, like, in middle school and couldn't quite figure out how to feed myself. And, but then drugs. Like, in high school, there was crossover between the grunge alternative kids, um, like, the hippie grunge alternative kids and the more punk grunge alternative kids. Uh-huh. But the hippies were the ones that, like, smoked a lot of pot yeah. and did drugs. And that was never my thing. Yeah. And it felt too out of control. It felt too free, like, too relaxed, too weird. I just couldn't. I was too nerdy for it or something. Yeah. And so I went towards punk and straight edge, which seems so much more, like, controlled and, like, aggro and mm-hmm. uptight. I know, because you all needed to just, like, drop some acid and... (laughs) (laughs) Like, the idea of, like, dropping acid and dancing in a field with other hippies, I was like, I don't think so. Yeah, that was kind of my thing. (laughs) That was me in high school. (laughs) It's like, weirdly, I was too square for that. I know, it's sort of funny. I mean, it's like a personality type thing, maybe. Like, you... You knew you were a countercultural person, and that your interests and your philosophies were not aligning with the status quo. Yeah. But yet you are socially horrified by the idea of, like, dancing to a drum with, like, a shirtless, sweaty guy in a field. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense. That's that's Colin to a T. He was always like, what? Ooh. But, I mean, like, <laughs> did... But then I would have that shirtless, sweaty guy standing in front of me at a punk show moshing into me. I know. I would be equally horrified, but something about it, knowing that he was, like, had an edge... Yeah. But he wasn't trying to smooth out his edges. And he wasn't trying to, yeah, he wasn't, like, talking to you about, like, love. and. Oh, yeah, no way. Um, there's, like, a, maybe there's a social boundary there that yeah. most people need. I wonder what it is. But, wait, punks and hippies. Oh, because I was going to say, growing up punk, I feel like I had that set of standard, low standards for living that uh-huh. you were talking about. So that's why I wondered if you were also punk. But I guess hippie also has that. Like, like, like it's something different than middle class values. It's like growing up and being like, I can live with a million roommates. Or yeah. I can eat out of a garbage can because that makes sense and this food's totally okay. Like, yeah. now, my friend made this book called The Lesbian Lexicon. Mm-hmm. And there's a word called punk damage, which is when you like kind of age out of that, but you still have these weird, horrifying, like, money-saving, like, sense of value tips, Uh but it's your punk damage where you, like, won't buy something new, even though you should, because it's actually the better thing in the long run, Yeah. but you have that internal sense of, like, oh. It's sort of, like, depression-era grandmas. I've dated someone that was, like, you have, like, a weird, like, 1920s almost, or, like, depression-era, like, yeah, like, sense of scarcity Mm. that doesn't make sense, because you've never actually lived through that. Yeah. I I know. Like, I'm, like, saving a banana. You're, like, I'll never it. have to. <laughs> I'll never have to because I can eat this belt. <laughs> but that helped me live as an artist. Yeah. Me, too. And my parents were lived like that, too. Like, mm-hmm. they were living in a van when I was born in Vancouver, and then they um, got evicted from an apartment. They were just, like, crashing mm-hmm. at their friend's house. And, you know, I'm a mom, so, like, the idea that you would not have a place to live with your infant. Like, you would come home from the hospital and just go to your friend's house and be like, can I sleep here? Um, Is nuts. But, you know, it was the 70s. People kind of did it differently back then. And I think that's not the way I was raised at all. Like, I was raised in an upper middle class uh, town in Westchester, New York. Mm -hmm. Not at all the scene I was raised in, but still kind of where I came from, and I think that there was a little bit of that, that I, I knew that my parents had been those kind of people before they had me, and I was like, oh, I wish I had, you know, I wish you had stayed living in that van, and that's how I had grown up, or I wish I had been you and living in the 70s, because I just was so kind of um, enamored with uh, the 60s and the 70s and hippie culture and stuff, so I think... Yeah. I don't know. I was sort of a student of hippie culture, so it all seemed like we were 
we the the glut of like the eighties and nineties seemed unnecessary to me. Yeah. I wonder if you had actually grown up that way if you would be Alex P. Keaton. Maybe. As a teenager. If you actually like had to live in a van. Yeah. As like a eleven year old. If you'd be like, ah still probably not, but my sister would have been. If there was an Alex P. Keaton in my family it was my sister. Your sister. Yeah. Hi Nicole. How do you maintain creative stamina? That question is harder to answer now than usual because I feel like I'm kind of in between projects and I have a bunch of stuff I'm supposed to do. I certainly have projects I'm supposed to be working on, but it's really hard right now for me after taking a little break to like get back into them. I have a lot of distractions. I want to garden mm-hmm. and I want to make art that has nothing to do with illustration and projects and stuff. But I do, I have a lot of creative stamina in general. I'm like a creatively compulsive person. So even gardening I think of as sort of a creative outlet. Um, And I do feel like, um, I feel like I go a little crazy if I'm not making things or painting things or drawing things. It's just kind of, it's just kind of something I do um, inevitably. And compulsively, I feel also like it's a compulsion. It's a compulsion, but I, but right now I'm having a hard time, like focusing it to do the things I'm supposed to be doing with that. Yeah, with that energy and that stamina. I'm trying to learn to be a little bit more forgiving with myself. As a, I'm a compulsive plus. I am like my own stage mom, so I'm always like work harder, work harder. Mm-hmm. So times when I'm not and I want to just like look at Instagram or like read articles online, I have to start being like, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe you're. You're, it's like a season, like it's the winter for yeah. a second, and you're taking in this information, like reading an article online, pretend like it's in a magazine, and then you would feel better about it. I know. I think that is a funny stigma we have um, about looking at computers. Yeah. Because sometimes I have a philosophy, Colin and I have a philosophy, it's sort of our joint philosophy, it's like a um, input versus output thing where like you need to have just as much input as you have output so for all the things you're making you also need to be reading and watching movies and maybe even having social interactions you know (laughs) like there needs to be as much stuff going in as going out right now I feel out of whack because I think there's a lot of stuff going in and not enough stuff coming out so it's like there's some bottling up happening Mm -hmm. but I think that um the stuff coming in doesn't need to all be like precious, inspiring, edifying stuff. It can also just be junk. Like, you just have to let your mind rest and you have to mm-hmm. not expect that you're just always making, making, making. Yeah. Or improving yourself when you're not, you know. Yeah. When you're just resting. Yeah. The, but on top of that, the artist Rutu Moden, do you know her work? Mm-mm. You might really like it. She's a cartoonist. But I heard her say... She gave me a talk and she said, the iPhone is the enemy of the artist mm-hmm. because it never lets you get bored. Yeah. Like if you have your iPhone, your brain never has to be bored. And then it's in those spaces in between things that you get ideas. Mm-hmm. So the idea of you gardening, I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's so great. Yeah. Because you're still doing something creative, but then you're kind of giving your mind space while you're doing the task work of it mm-hmm. to come up with new ideas. It's true, and I do garden, <clears throat> and I also like play with my kids and draw with them and read them books and get inspired by doing all those things. But I also notice that I do love looking at my phone. I love Instagram. That's sort of my phone, um, my phone addiction. And that, like, I have a hammock in the shade, and in on the rare chance that I have a moment to just lie in the shade and do something. Mm-hmm. I think 10 years ago, I would have gotten the book I was reading or maybe like an art book that I hadn't had a chance to look at and I would have gone in that hammock and read it. But now it's just Instagram. And I don't know if that's necessarily bad. Like I feel like Mm -hmm. Instagram keeps me connected to people and I love looking at it and I love being inspired by like the people I follow on Instagram. It's not horrible. Mm -hmm. I'm not a jerk. But it is different. Like it's definitely, it's that whole thing. Like and, and when I was in college in Montana... The only way I could find out about artists was by um, renting a documentary at the library, you know, or learning about an artist in an art history class, which limits the amount of artists you would learn about in college to, you know, the the amount that you could be taught about in a semester-long class. So, like, there's something about that 
that makes um, it just as it's not as special when everything's at your fingertips. I think it doesn't yeah. feel as intentional when you as when you had to sort of seek something out or had a book you were excited to read. And I don't know. It feels different. Not terrible, but different. Hi guys. So basically, I'd like to know. What happens when you have too many creative projects going on at one time and they're basically eating up all of your life, but you can't let any of them go? I routinely feel this way, though I'm so stingy about the projects that I do do. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you decide which projects you do? I turn down almost all of them because I work, I always have a book I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Right now I'm, you know, four, I have four books lined up, so I have to, well, I guess three. Um, and a fourth one that I want to pitch, a fourth one that's an idea. And so, and each book takes a half a year to a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means, you know, like I'm scheduled out pretty much for the next two or three years working on books <clears throat> and there's downtime in, in there, but the downtime is often not super, um, predictable so the downtime might be like I send some sketches to an editor and I wait for feedback and maybe I get feedback in a week or maybe I get feedback in three weeks. Like who knows how much time there is in between. So basically my rule is I say no to everything. Mm-hmm. And sometimes often the stuff I say yes to is stuff that's like uh, charity type stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like if my kid's school needs an invitation, I did invitations for school auctions for both my kids schools this year mm-hmm. or I did a Slater Kinney t-shirt because I was like oh I love them and I have a good idea for it you know like if I have a good idea and it's something that I'm like that won't take long and I know exactly what I want to do I'll say yes if it's something that um I I have any mixed feelings about I usually just say no mm. Sometimes I say no to things that I regret and I just sit around regretting them. Like I still, I was asked to do a cover for an edition of Wind in the Willows a couple of years ago, which is a book I love. And I can't believe I said no to it, but I just couldn't at the time. I was like, I can't really figure out when I would do this. So I said no. And now sometimes I just sit around and like wistfully think about how I could have done a book cover for Wind in the Willows. Um, but I just, my, my rule of thumb is say no to everything. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Isn't when there you have... like a book about saying yes to everything? I think this year someone wrote a well, book that was Shonda like... Rhimes wrote a book called The Year of Yes. Oh, is that what I'm thinking? I really recommend it as really? an audio book. She reads it and it's really beautiful. But I, is the idea that you say yes to everything instead of no? It's not like self-helpy like that. It's not like the life-changing act of cleaning up or it's like, clean your room. It's oh. like um, she said no to everything for a long time because she was busy workaholing on her show and being a super introvert yeah so she decided to, that sounds like me she decided to spend a year saying yes to all the different opportunities she got uh-huh. to see where it went uh-huh. which i mean could just be a narrative device for her to talk about different ways she changed her life yeah but she like got more social she focused on her health she said no to someone who asked her to marry them which was oh. her saying yes to herself yeah okay she went on oprah like she she said yes for all in a made her life so much better to say yes for a year. Uh-huh. But in your case, I feel like there's a lot of power in saying no because you're making space for yourself to have mental space for the ideas you currently have. I am. Yeah. I have to be laser focused because it's like with the farm and with the kids and with all the other things that are in life, it's like my illustration time is so limited and I want the stuff that I do it's not limited. I work in my studio every day, but it is limited. You know, it's like six hours a day and that's it. Um, and that's not a lot of time. As you know, like six hours goes pretty quickly mm-hmm. if you're working on something arduous. Um, so I want the stuff that I do to be good and I don't want to take on other projects that I can't. My, my overarching philosophy is like, do I have time to do this awesomely? If the answer is no, then I say no. Do I have time to do this awesomely? If the answer is yes, but I don't even like the idea and I don't think I would do something awesome anyway, then the answer is no. And that pretty much rules out of like 19 out of 20 projects. Mm-hmm. Sadly, but I say no to things I would like to say yes to. What is your dream project? My dream project, I think, um, 
I like writing and illustrating my own books. Mm-hmm. That's a dream project. I have another idea for a... I just finished doing that. I have a book coming out in the fall. And um, and by books, I mean picture books uh, for kids. And I have another idea for one that I, I would like to start working on in the next year or so. And then I think also because I've been doing so much illustration right now, my dream project, what I think would feel really good is to just have an art show. Mm. So I think it looks like not this fall, but next fall, fall of 2017, which probably seems like comically far away, but it'll go quickly. I'm going to have a show of big landscape paintings and actually Whoa. paint on canvas and do big paintings, which I haven't done since college practically. It's How, been a really long time. Do you allot time for that in your normal work schedule, or is that bonus time? I haven't sorted it out, but I'll have to allot time for it. So um not totally sure where it fits in yet, but I think it will mm-hmm. somehow. Do you have, like, um, tell me the thing that you and Colin think about, input-output, mm-hmm. which I totally agree with. Yeah. But do you have an overarching kind of manifesto or a thing that you want to get across with your work? You know, or a thing that you're trying to do. Um, like I'm always, I feel like no matter what, I mean, I, I like the idea that with my work, people are getting to know a gay person mm-hmm. or a vegan person, and maybe they don't know anyone like that. Mm-hmm. So maybe they feel a little bit of empathy for those people then after that. Yeah. But I also like the idea, I always want to work for animals, and I don't even feel like I'm there yet doing the thing I want to do for them, mm-hmm. but I know I'm on the path. Like, mm-hmm. all these things, like, self-expression is just, like, a compulsion. I just have to do it. But ultimately, I want to serve animals in some way. So that's my, like, long game. Mm-hmm. My long game is get to go to Africa or something. Is it really? Yeah. Huh. And help animals in that way without getting my face ripped off by a chimp. Yeah, don't do that. If I could help the chimp while maintaining my face and vital organs, uh-huh. like, that would be a goal. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have an overarching thing, no. Mm. One thing that I that I think about a lot is that, yeah, okay, maybe I do have an overarching philosophy. I think that I love illustration. Mm-hmm. It's sort of where my heart is at. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I feel like, you know, I was a fine arts major in college. I got a painting degree because there was no illustration program. But I found my way to illustration pretty quickly after I graduated just because it's sort of what I'm better at, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love being a fine artist too and so and I I feel like there doesn't need to be this rift or schism between the two um, disciplines like I feel like they should sort of be the same thing Mm -hmm. so I think one thing I'm always trying to do is that when I do illustration I'm trying to make something that I could conceivably see in a frame on a wall even if it's a page or a spread in a picture book Mm -hmm. so it has all of these other parameters and things it needs to do you know it needs to illustrate a text it needs to have a relationship with the spread that came before it and the one that comes after it it needs to have like an arc that matches the arc of the story like it needs to do all these things but it also I think needs to be like a standalone piece of art Mm -hmm. but then I think um, that's sort of interchangeable for me because when I'm doing fine art or painting which I don't do that much but when I do it I sort of want it to look like illustration Mm-hmm. I really I want it to be something that would make sense if you saw it in a book, mm-hmm. which is why I feel like I'm typically my fine art is very uh, narrative and illustration like. So I think blurring the line between those two things so that it doesn't exist is an important part of mm-hmm. being an artist for me. Um, I feel like you succeeded that. Thank you. You're welcome. I try hard. I don't feel like I always do, but mm. that's my goal. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I feel like there's just certain things that I'm like, I always have a secret agenda. It might be part of being a Sagittarius. Ah. But yeah, that's my secret agenda. That's your secret I mean, there's, agenda. there's the secret. Yeah, just to spill the beans. <laughs> the secret agenda is promoting empathy. That's, that's a good secret. Yeah. It's your dirty <laughs> secret. I remember getting drunk before and telling somebody, I'm like, you know what? It's like, <laughs> I'm like, I was really... You know what I'm really doing with my autobiographical comics? <laughs> I was like, you know what I actually... Endgame? Helping animals? <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> They'll kick me out. <laughs> I am very jealous that you're an illustrator because as a cartoonist, like you get, I'm like, oh my god, illustrators get to draw like one really good drawing. Yeah. And I have to draw like a 
billion. I know. Billion okay drawings. This is the thing that stops me from like even a short comic is that I don't. It seems like too much work. But, but I'm I've really seen, glad you guys do it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I saw some panels you posted on Instagram before, of of a comic that you started. Yeah. And it looks so good. That's the thing I want to do. That's the that's my next kids book idea. Um, were those panels? There, it's like two little girls, and they want a cat, and so they just venture out into like this psychedelic wilderness looking for cats, looking for a cat, and they have adventures. I think if that is a comic, it would just slay. Like Thank it would you just so much for saying welcome. that. Like it would be like Middle Earth. You'd be like, just like all, all the cartoons would be laying dead on the ground. And you'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> I have vanquished you. <laughs> You know what the thing is with it is that when I started it, I only drew four panels, and um, I uh, uh, wait four panels, four strips, and I the rule I made for myself was no photo reference because mm. I feel like I'm addicted to photo reference. You know, mm. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna draw a cat. What do cats look like? Mm-hmm. You know, so stupid. Yeah. I'm gonna draw a cave. What does a cave look like? Yeah. And then you pull it, go to like a picture of a cave. Yeah. So I was like, no photo reference and make up the story as you go along. So while I was drawing it, I was thinking of what would be happening in the next strip. So, and I had it kind of set up so that, like, I figured out the dimensions of what the panels and the strips would be, but also, like, if I wanted to just do two strips and then have the bottom half of the page be like a big illustration Mm -hmm. have some pages be like a full illustration have like a spread that's just like a landscape like just have it be all over the place Mm -hmm. um but I kind of felt like in order to do it nobody could tell me what to do I wanted to just sit down and kind of have it be almost like a free association story Mm -hmm. but not because it takes so long to paint those little panels yeah that I by the time I got to the next part of the story, I would have figured out what was going to happen because it just takes so long to do it. So that's the way I want to do it. But it, it, the way my life is, I tend to not really sit down and work on books unless I have a book deal for them. Like unless yeah. somebody's, um, unless I've sold it and I have a contract. Like that's just the way I've been rolling for like ten years. So to do this, I need to clear out my schedule in order to do it and in order to clear out my schedule I need to I feel like I need the book deal to clear out the schedule yeah because otherwise these other things that I'm getting paid for take precedent yeah and in order to get the book deal I have to figure out what's going to happen in it and I have to like can't just be like and I want some money to just draw this free association psychedelic comic about girls and cats yeah and like what happens you're like who knows who knows (laughs) you'll find out if you give me money yeah (laughs) So, like, I'm not sure. I'm, a little, like, a little bit of a standstill with it, and I don't have time to work on it right now anyway. Yeah. But um, but I really want to do that. I love comics so much, but that's the thing. I can't imagine drawing them because they take too long. Awful. <laughs> I aspire to do children's book illustrations, but it feels like it is a different language, and it takes so much more thought than one might imagine to make a concise good story for kids it's hard so I feel like I'm working up to that I'm working up to less drawings Mm -hmm. is what I'm working up to I think that's a good goal and I think like it's true that making a picture book for kids is so much more complicated than I think people think it is it's really like there's just to do it well there there's so many things that have to be sort of worked together in the right way but I also think like people who transition into kids books from other pursuits like comics or animation or editorial illustration I think the impulse is to kind of or the instinct is to change your style to make it more kids book illustrating mm-hmm. but the best thing is when you see a kids book by someone who comes from a different uh whatever um mm-hmm. a, a, from a different sphere but they've but their style is the same, and that's the thing that makes people love your art mm-hmm. as a cartoonist would be the same thing that would make kids be drawn to it mm. as kid readers. Mm-hmm. I would love to see you make a picture book. Thanks. Yeah, I think you should do it. Thanks. I have a pet project. I don't know what, what age it's for, but it's about a sloth. Mm-hmm. And I feel similar to you about your Girls and the Cats book where I don't... I want to work on it so bad, but right now it's for fun. Uh-huh. And so I never work carve out time for fun. It's really, really hard. Because when you make your fun your job, it's still fun, but you have to... Okay. 
Wait, my last two questions for you. Okay. A, what do you use for what materials do you use? Mm -hmm. What do you like to do? What do you like to draw with? And the last question is, uh, what advice do you have for people about exposure? Oh, exposure. Because (laughs) exposure, let me explain to people that are not illustrators or cartoonists or whatever. So sometimes people will offer you an illustration job and then there's no money. And then they're like, but it's great exposure. And when you're first starting, you're like, cool. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, for me, I'm like, well, I was exposed enough for you to find me to ask me to do this for free. Yeah. But what what is your advice for people or did you have to make a rule for yourself or start? I don't know. I'll answer that one first because that's the more fun question. Um, So my own people, this is controversial, as you know. People have strong opinions about it. Exposure? About exposure. Um, One part of the controversy is people asking you to work for free and telling you that it's for exposure. This just happened to me, actually. That you needed exposure? Yeah. (laughs) It was that someone asked me to do something. And in all fairness, I was also getting credit at a store. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't totally for exposure, but it said benefits for the illustrator. And I had this little like bullet bullet pointed thing that said like, um, you know, you'll get X amount of money and credit to the store Mm -hmm. for the store. And we're also going to, your like your name will be on our Instagram. And this is how many people follow us on Instagram and you know, they'll all see your name. And like that kind of sentiment, I feel like is universally loathed in the illustration world. Yes. Just like, come on. I, and it doesn't, for some people that does make sense. Like you said, if you were like fresh out of college and had never had a gig, you'd be like, oh fuck yeah, that's amazing. I would love all those people on your, your Instagram followers to see my name. Yeah. Killer. Especially yeah. it's like this opportunity for me to make something that I feel awesome. It's like an advertisement. Yeah. It's like free advertising. It's true. I, I totally get it. Yeah. But I think that. If you are already exposed, if you don't need exposure, then it becomes sort of like goofy and insulting. And like, dude, this is a job that I get paid for. Like, this is a chunk out of my day that I'm taking to do this. And on the one hand, I'm always game to do that if it's charitable somehow or other. But if it's for a business, it's like, I I get it. You, You don't have a budget for this. But you're you're asking the wrong person. It's insulting and dumb. Yeah. Um, however, as a young artist myself, you know, when yeah. I was like in my mid twenties, and I had graduated from the University of Montana with my painting degree, but wanted to be an illustrator, yeah. and had no idea how to do that, I was pretty stoked to do anything for free, and I did do anything for free. Yeah. I did um, all the art for Collins Band, the Decemberists, for free, or for you know pizza. Mm -hmm. beer and I did um illustrations for mostly for bands you know I feel like I did a lot of posters and like t-shirt art and stuff um and I did flyers that then ended up on telephone poles and that's sort of how I feel like I probably got some of my first illustrating gigs Mm -hmm. what that that and the Decemberist I think art directors saw my work in that context and Mm -hmm. it was all stuff I did for free so I, I do think it's important to do stuff for free if you want to and not yeah. feel like you're selling yourself short. I think maybe if you have no, if you have few prospects for making money as an illustrator, you should just do whatever you can and get your work out there, especially if it's something that inspires you, like doing art for a band you love or something. Yeah. But I do think that, um, I think that people suggesting that you work for free in order to like better your career need to check themselves yeah. <laughs> like at least like check who they're asking you know yeah if they if they had it's exactly what you said if they've found you <laughs> if the if the email starts with we're huge fans of your work then yeah. you you you're exposed you're exposed you don't need exposure was Maybe, there a point that you knew that you were exposed enough that you were like i can't yeah i mean i guess i feel like for a long time, for like 10 years, I've been busy. Yeah. I've been turning down things because I haven't had time to do it. Yeah. So um, that to me tells me that, you know, like, I guess I could be more exposed. <laughs> we keep saying exposed. I don't know what we're really <laughs> trying to say, like famous or successful or something. But I don't want to because I don't have time to do the work, you know? Like, like if you were Norman Rockwell, 
I'm trying to think of someone else that's exposed. Maxfield Parish. <laughs> exposed enough that they're a household name in every kind of household that ever existed. Yeah. Like, why? I, I don't feel like I need that glory. Yeah. Not that you would get it from, like, whatever, being on someone's Instagram or whatever, but yeah. but I also feel like it doesn't do me any good because I'm already doing the things I want to and I don't have time to do them. Yeah. I, which I recognize I'm extraordinarily lucky to be able to say that beyond words. But I don't I, I'm not like hustling. Yeah. So you're like, well what else would I get from this? And I was hustling. Yeah. At one point and if someone had said like, dude, we have, you know, fifteen thousand Instagram followers and your name is gonna be there, I would have been like, Are you fucking kidding me? That's amazing. I'm in. Yeah. But like do your homework if you're gonna yeah. ask people to do that. And it's like something that happens to everyone I know. Like Oh yeah. No matter kind of what level they're at in their career, people still... It's upsetting to me a little bit because I get a little stressed out every time I someone asks me for anything. Mm-hmm. I have like a pang of stress. Yeah. So then if there's nothing attached to it, there's no friendship attached to it, there's no good cause attached to it, there's no money attached to it. It's not a good cause. Yeah, that's it's, the thing. It's, it's like, it's like, your business. can I make money off of your art? Please, but you not make money <laughs> off of that? I just, I'm, I feel this pang of stress. <laughs> Even getting the request, I'm like, oh no! <laughs> How do I respond to this without being furious? I don't. I don't even respond usually. Yeah. I mean, sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, okay. What do you use? Mediums, materials. Yes. Um, I use gouache. Mm-hmm. Most of what I do is gouache on watercolor paper, and I often use pen and ink, like a little nib pen. Mm-hmm. I think I use. I'm trying to remember what nib I've been using. Maybe it's like a 57 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, a nib. And an inkwell, and I, I'll do like a painting in gouache, and then if there's like fine line details I want to do, I'll do that over. Mm. I do lettering often with a nib pen. Mm. Um, yeah, and I underdraw with like a mechanical pencil. Oh, I like, I like how few thick black lines you have in your work. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. As a cartoon, this is like all this is like the opposite engineering where I'm like, because all I as a cartoonist all I use is yeah thick black lines, so I feel like compulsed to put them everywhere. Yeah. Even if I'm like, I'm going to do gray wash on this later, I have to like manage myself at the moment because in the moment I just want to fill in as much space as I can with that black pen. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, did you watch Breaking Bad? Yeah. Okay. I imagine the really unpleasant white power guys from the last season of Breaking Bad, uh-huh. I imagine them standing over me when I'm starting to overdraw and I imagine them being like, you sure you want to put that there? Like, with their guns, <laughs> with their machine guns or whatever. It's the only thing that can temper you. Because <laughs> when I'm like, I just got to cross-hatch this part. And I imagine being like, you sure you want to do that? You might want to put gray wash there later. It's going to look a little bit less overworked. Yeah. And then that's the only thing that could stop me from that feeling of just, like, drawing and drawing and filling up all the space with as many tiny black lines as I can. I used to be much more like that because I used to do so much more kind of line-oriented stuff. Yeah. And then I kind of switched more to shapes and colors and I have it's just funny the way you develop these conventions for yourself like these stylistic rules that you feel like you can't break and you don't know how to break them yeah and and you maybe you don't want to break them because maybe the thing that that compels you to break them is this little voice in your head that's like, do something different, open your mind, like figure out a new way to work. But then you do that and people are like, oh, but that was your work. Like that was sort of what defined your work for me. Yeah. So it's probably not, it's probably good to like not overthink it and just go with those instincts. But I'm constantly trying to break these little rules I made for myself and then finding a lot of the time instead of feeling like they're opening doors that that actually closes doors makes rules. me feel more connected more disconnected from what I was doing like what kind of rules like you're like this always looks like this um what kind of rules like um I like to draw people in profile mm-hmm. I'm often drawing people in profile mm-hmm. and I'll be like god you're such a bad artist draw someone in like a three-quarter <laughs> view so then I'll do someone in a three-quarter view, and I'll be like, oh, it's totally sort of lost the graphic quality that I liked about the profile. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I remind myself, no, no, you can draw. You know how to draw a person, like, looking slightly to the side. Yeah. But, but that's not why you develop that convention. You develop that convention because something about the graphic quality of a person in profile, like, uh, is pleasing to you. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think about using less lines and it feels so, it sounds so freeing in my mind. Like, mm-hmm. I'll just feel, I'll feel groovy. Yeah, I'll achieve grooviness. But the lines are what, like, a big part of what makes the art beautiful. Yeah. 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 Or, like, this thing I used to always, when I was drawing a tree. Yeah. This is probably similar to your thing. I'd draw every single leaf on the tree and I couldn't stop Fuck myself. That. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's, Super like, so beautiful. Crazy. But, fuck that. Yeah. It's crazy. That one I broke, and I think that was a good call. You did. I, that A tree is something I think about, and I'm like, it takes so much time to do it that like that way, but it always looks really good when you're done. It does. There's like a carrot at the end of the stick. But I also, I've started, I had to make a new way to draw trees because that I did before, and it killed me. Yeah. Like thinking about doing that over and over and over and over again. Because comics is different. Once you yeah. do it, it means you might have to do it a million times. Yeah, right on the next panel. Which is why when I was a kid, I wanted to be an animator. And then I was like, ugh, you have to draw the same thing over and over again? No way. I know. It really takes a special kind of brain to actually do that. follow through with the desire to be an animator. It's, it's grueling. But now you can use computers. That's true. I just The book I just finished working on that's coming out in the fall is basically like animation, sort of. I don't know how to describe it, except it's... Every spread is the exact same background. So I did it in two pieces. There's like this background that's the landscape that stays the same on every page. And then there's a plant that grows bigger and all these things that happen Mm. around it. So I drew like the plant growing bigger and all the little creatures around the plant for each page. Mm -hmm. Um, But it sort of works like animation because the plant gets a little bigger and I have to draw the same little characters on each page. So I had a bit of a taste of what it would be like to be an animator, a tiny taste of it. And a bigger taste of what it would be like to be a cartoonist. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's like a 48-page picture book and every spread I was drawing the same little people doing little different things. I would call that a comic. If you were like, could this be a comic? I'd be like, yeah, sure. Maybe. A little bit. A little comic-y. Well, Carson, thank you for talking to me for Sagittarian Matters. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Wait, what's your sign? Um, Libra. Oh. I like Libras here. Oh, good. Yeah. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. This is not the first podcast I've recorded from your studio. Really? My friend Michelle T. came over when I was house-sitting, and we did an interview sitting right there on this daybed and we talked we gave advice oh sweet and I told her a story about the llamas here at your house because I was house sitting and I thought I heard the llamas scream at night and I was feeling both protective of the animals but a little bit freaked out to be in the country by myself in the middle you know Uh the middle of the night to be like I heard the llamas scream and I was like all right, this is it. And I like went outside with like a broom or something. Good. And you know, in my like weird hot pants with my cell phone as the flashlight. Uh-huh. And I went into like the field and I was like, all right. And then like Panyo was like blind and she like went darting into the distance. So like oh. if it had been a coyote, she's like dead. Like she's like, she's like, ah! or, like ran at nothing. And then all the animals were, the animals were like, what are you doing out here? There's nothing going on. And I, cause I thought I heard them scream, but it was a horse and heat or someone really because it might have been the llama screaming really but because they do do that did you know have we talked about this no but i googled llama scream from bed Mm -hmm. so i was in there and i heard actually done the exact same thing i heard it once and i was like the animals need me and i was like let me check and make sure that's what i heard and so i googled llama scream and then i watched a youtube video of llama screaming i've probably watched the same video and i was like that's it that's what it was i was like I'm coming to save you. And then I, I ran out there. And, but, the, like, the sheep were sleeping. The sheep were, like, mm. the sheep were, like, what's going on? And the goats were, like, are you okay? Like, what are you doing out here? <laughs> I feel like I just woke everybody up. Like, lady, put some pants on. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. I think that um, they do scream, and there are coyotes. And we definitely heard them scream to chase away coyotes before. That's why people have llamas out here. A lot of the time is to protect their goats and their sheep. Um, 
ostensibly why we have them, though they were here when we moved here. But they will scream if a coyote comes running up, and then the coyote will just run away because oh. um, because a llama will kill a coyote. Really? They will stomp it. Yeah, they're terrified of llamas. Like kick them in the face, or they will stomp their face. I don't know exactly what it looks like or how it unfolds, but yeah, they will totally kill a coyote. They're fierce. They're much fiercer than me with my broom and my chihuahua. Being that like, was pretty fierce. Too. I'm here to protect you. No, that was totally fierce. <laughs> you could have just sat in there with your chihuahua up in bed and waited for them to sort it out. But for future reference, yes. if you hear them scream, yeah. they've probably got it sorted. They're That's pretty nice. badass. Colin heard one night at like four in the morning. I wasn't here. Um, I was, like, away on a trip or something. But at 4 in the morning, he heard, like, a gang of coyotes all yipping and yapping and making a bunch of noise. And we do have all these chickens and goats and a sheep. And so, and then he heard the llama scream. Yeah. And he ran out there just in time to see them all scatter because they're so The scary. coyotes? Yeah. There were a bunch of them. I think you told me about the llamas squaring off the coyotes. Uh-huh. So I had it in my head. So I was like, okay, I have to go help them battle. I, I have the to coyotes. go beat a coyote to death with this broom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweep it away from the farm. You don't have to. That's the llama's job. Wow. They're into it. Now I, they're like, go to bed. We got this. We here. got this. They're like, you're actually making this worse for everyone. Like, the chihuahua like that just got picked up by an eagle just made this like so much worse. <laughs> I'm so glad Ponyo didn't get picked up by an eagle. Me too. I thought or about eaten by it. a coyote. Well, she would be, like, I would be here, and then she would be, like, way out, just sitting by herself in a field, just relaxing. Uh-huh. And then I would just imagine a hawk or somebody's like, just coming and picking her up and taking her away. But it could come. It could happen. She's super little. Knock on wood, it didn't happen. Good. So far. Bad. Yeah. She was kind of okay with everyone. But all that is to say, I talked about that on the podcast, because uh-huh. Michelle cruised by for lunch. We sat here and talked for the podcast, and then she met the llamas. And then I was like, here's what happened. I totally the know about this, but I forgot to listen to the podcast. Oh, well, now you, I'll listen to it. Now today. you're going to listen to it and you're going to be like, oh, she just told me that exact story, except for I made more mama scream impressions on the podcast. Oh. Like, like, ah! like I can't. I, I was going to say, like, should you throw one in just so this podcast is just as good? It was like, I don't know if you have an impression of the llamas screaming, but it was like a, like. It's like a yodel kind of. Was it like, ah! Yes. Like it was like a crazy scream. It was, that was really good. Thank you. Uh-huh. It was frightening, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to hear, like, in the dead of night, you're in the country, so there's no traffic or anything, and you just hear it pierce. It kind of sounds like a woman screaming. The other thing that's scary out here that I don't know if you encountered is that we have barn owls that live in the, um, in the cupola of our barn, and they hunt at night. So if you come outside... They will sometimes be hunting, and they scream when they're hunting, and sometimes they'll fly sort of low over you and scream. I know. I would imagine... Terrors of country life. But is there, like, do you hear rabbits scream, their last scream, or is that the owls? They don't get rabbits. They get mice, and they are probably screaming, but it's probably super quiet. Because when I heard that noise, I was like, maybe that's a rabbit (laughs) screaming its last. (laughs) I didn't think about it being the owls. I thought about a rabbit being like, no! <laughs> but the neighbor, nosy neighbor, told me that she thought it was a horse in heat. Really? But now it probably was the llamas. I really think she's wrong. Thank I you. think it was the llamas. Because that was a super awesome llama screaming impersonation oh, that thanks. you just did. Yeah. I don't know what horses in heat sound like, but that was pretty right on. Thanks. Yeah, it didn't sound like horses in It didn't sound sexy. No. Like that. It didn't sound like something that would call anyone else to them or like attract anything. 